Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. Anybody? <laughs> Alhamdulillah. So uh, today, inshallah ta'ala, we are beginning hadith number 24. It's a hadith on the authority of Abu Dhar. He said that the Messenger of Allah says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. And the fact that the Prophet is quoting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this makes it a hadith qudsi. And so I'll just go through the hadith and then we'll go into more detail, inshallah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala declares, and Allah says, What? Ya ibadi, inni haramtu zulma ala nafsi, wajaltuhu baynakum muharraman fala tazalamu. Ya ibadi. Actually, you know what? Let me restart. I wanted to mention, I forgot, it's very important before I begin this hadith, I want to mention that subhanAllah, this hadith Qudsi, when it was narrated by a particular Sahabi named Sa'id, uh, he mentioned that when Abu Idris Khawlani would narrate this hadith, he would go down on his knees before he began. And the reason he did this is because this hadith Qudsi, you'll notice, is made up of 10 statements that say, Oh my servants. Okay. So I want you to imagine this, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying to you, calling you a slave of his and speaking to you directly. And I want you, because it's, it's one thing to analyze these hadith from a purely um, intellectual perspective, but it's another one to really feel it, like you're being spoken to, right? These are 10 statements where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking to his slaves and calling them, oh my slaves, over and over again. And each time you hear that statement, you should feel that Allah ta'ala is essentially putting you in your place and reminding you of your status before him, which is uh, one of servitude. So let me start again. Allah ta'ala ta declares what? Ya ibadi. إِنِّي حَرَّمْتُ الظُّلْمَ عَلَىٰ نَفْسِي وَجَعَلْتُهُ بَيْنَكُمْ مُحَرَّمًا فَلَا تَظَالَمُوا يَا عِبَادِ كُلُّكُمْ ضَالٌ إِلَّا مَنْ هَدَيْتُهُ فَاسْتَهْدُونِي أَهْدِكُمْ يَا عِبَادِ كُلُّكُمْ جَائِعٌ إِلَّا مَنْ أَطْعَمْتُهُ فَاسْتَطْعِمُنِي أُطْعِمْكُمْ يَا عِبَادِ كُلُّكُمْ عَارٍ إِلَّا مَنْ كَسَوْتُهُ فَاسْتَكْسُونِي أَكْسُكُمْ يا عبادي إنكم تخطئون بالليل والنهار وأنا أغفر الذنوب جميعا فاستغفروني أغفر لكم يا عبادي إنكم لن تبلغوا ضري فتضروني ولن تبلغوا نفعي فتنفع فتنفعوني يا عبادي لو أن أولكم وآخركم وإنسكم وجنكم كانوا على أتقى قلب رجل واحد منكم ما زاد ذلك في ملكي شيئا يا عبادي لو أن أولكم وآخركم وإنسكم وجنكم كانوا على أفجر على أفجر قلب رجل واحد ما نقص ذلك من ملك شيئا يا عبادي لو أن أولكم وآخركم وإنسكم وجنكم قاموا في صعيد واحد فسألوني فأعطيت كل إنسان مسألته مسألته ما نقص ذلك مما عندي إلا كما ينقص المخيط إذا أدخل البحر يا عبادي إنما في إنما هي أعمالكم أحصيها أحصيها لكم ثم وفيكم إياها فمن وجد خيرا فليحمد الله ومن وجد غير ذلك فلا يلومن إلا نفسه. So what is this hadith saying? Ten statements declaring. Oh my servants. I have forbidden oppression upon myself, and I have made it forbidden amongst you, so do not oppress one another. That's number one. Number two, O oh my servants, all of you are lost except those who I have guided, so seek my guidance and I will guide you. O oh my servants, all of you are hungry except those who I have fed, so seek food from me and I will feed you. O oh my servants, all of you are naked except those who I have clothed, so seek clothing from me and I will clothe you. O oh my servants, you sin by night and by day, and I forgive all sins, so seek forgiveness of me and I will forgive you. O oh my servants, 
You cannot attain my harm to harm me, and you cannot attain my benefit to benefit me. O my servants, were the first of you and the last of you, and the human and the jinn of you, were to be as pious as the most pious-hearted person from amongst you, that would not increase my dominion in anything. And O my servants, were the first of you and the last of you, and the human and the jinn of you, were to be as wicked as the most wicked-hearted person from amongst you, that would not decrease my dominion in anything. O my servants, were the first of you and the last of you, and the human and the jinn of you, to rise up in one place and ask of me, and I were to give everyone what they requested, that would not decrease of what I have any more than a needle decreases the sea when you put it in and take it out. O my servant, it is but your deeds that I record, that I record for you, and then reward you for. So whoever finds good should praise Allah, and whoever finds other than that should blame no one but himself. So this is the hadith, and subhanAllah, it's a very heavy hadith, and as you can see, 10 parts. Um, there's a lot to be said here, and so I'm only going to be covering a, a small portion of it tonight, inshallah ta'ala. We're going to go through this piecemeal, inshallah. And the first thing that we have to address is, what exactly is the difference between a hadith Qudsi and Qur'an? Because the whole idea is that a hadith Qudsi is the Prophet ﷺ conveying to us what Allah says. But that's Qur'an too. Qur'an is revelation, and these are the words of Allah. So most people rightfully would ask the question, okay, so what's the difference here? The answer is in a few different perspectives. Number one, the Qur'an is an established miracle, right? It's an established miracle. Whereas that isn't necessarily the claim about Hadith Qudsi. That isn't uh, something that is put out there as like this is in, in and of itself a contained miracle. Same thing with the fact that the Qur'an is a challenge to all of mankind until Judgment Day. Hadith Qudsi, they don't put out that type of challenge. And thirdly, Qur'an is used in prayer, whereas Hadith Qudsi is not used in prayer. So these are some differences. And I think one easy way to understand it, and Allah, you know, وَلِلَّهِ الْمَثَلُ الْأَعْلَىٰ Allah is the highest of examples, but just something simple that we can all understand is that if I, let's say, me or you or anybody, what is to write a book, right? And you were to publish it and say, here's my book. And then one day you're talking about your book, you're making commentary on your book, you're saying, you're just making some comments. Does that mean that the comments that you make are automatically put inside the book? The answer is no. Why? Because you published the book as is. You wanted it to be this many chapters, with this many words, with this many ideas. That, it's, 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 a, it's a done deal. It's a set package. It is what it is. Now, whether I comment on it after that or not, doesn't change the fact that the book is what it is. And so, yes, both of them are the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes, we don't deny that the Qur'an, uh, uh, it's the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that hadith Qudsi, the Prophet is saying, the Prophet is saying these are, this is what Allah says. So it seems to be similar. But at the same time, you or me or anybody can write a book and, and we can still differentiate between my words that I put out as a book, as a challenge, as a thing that you pray with, as a thing that is a miracle, versus my commentary about it or about something else later on. So I hope that's clear. Now, some scholars, they'll add other points about what is a hadith Qudsi. They'll say that a hadith Qudsi is the words of Allah subhanahu uh, sorry, that the Qur'an is the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala both in word and in meaning, whereas a hadith Qudsi is in meaning but not in word. And so what does that mean? To give a simple example, sometimes in the Qur'an you'll find that Allah says that Musa alayhi salam qala Musa wa qala Musa uh, wa qala Fir'aun. Fir'aun said this, Musa said that. Now the thing is, whatever statement comes after that is in the Arabic language. Musa alayhi salam didn't speak Arabic. Fir'aun didn't speak Arabic. So why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala quote words that are in Arabic when those people didn't speak Arabic? Did they actually say that? So what does that mean? Well, yes, they said it in meaning, but not in word. Does everyone understand this? I mean, obviously the Qur'an quotes people from many different languages. So obviously they didn't all speak Arabic. I hope that's clear. So this is in wording, uh, excuse me, in meaning, but not in wording. 
Uh, and so some people say, well, the wording of the Qur'an is the specific words of Allah Ta'ala, but in terms of Hadith Qudsi, these are the words of the Prophet but the meaning is correct. Now, this is, a, this is a very popular opinion, but at the same time, it doesn't seem to have much evidence for it. So, Wallahu Ta'ala A'lam, I personally lean towards the opinion that says, no, they are uh, in both word and in meaning, what Allah Ta'ala has said. When the Prophet says that Allah says this, that's what Allah Ta'ala said. And so, uh, I don't see any reason to uh, hold to that particular opinion, but it's an opinion. And another opinion is that a difference between Qur'an and uh, Hadith Qudsi is that Qur'an is mutawatir. Mutawatir means that it's narrated by so many different chains of narration from so many different uh, independent sources that to imagine that they all corroborated on a lie is nonsensical. Kind of like the way if I asked you, you know, have you ever been to Australia? And you're like, no. And I'm like, do you believe that there's a place called Australia that exists? You're like, well, yeah, of course it does. I'm like, well, how do you know if you've never been there? You'd be like, the whole world didn't conspire to make every map and to agree that we're all going to lie to this one guy and we're all going to be really convincing with our accents and with everything, you know, you know we're going to make up, uh, what are they, uh, koala, koalas and kangaroos, you know, we're going we're to have a whole thing just to mess with this guy. Uh, 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 you know, nobody, nobody's going to corro- corroborate on such a big level uh, just to deceive us. And so that's kind of the idea of uh, mutawatir. And Quran comes to us mutawatir. Quran comes to us in so many different routes that you can't deny it. Whereas hadith, even though they come through authentic Authentic hadith, obviously, authentic hadith Qudsi are authentic, but they don't necessarily have as many uh, turuq or chains or asanid, you know, uh, chains of narration. The problem with this, uh, this opinion, even though it, it makes sense, that it doesn't address the real question, which is what is the difference between Quran and hadith Qudsi at the time of the Prophet ﷺ? At the time of the Prophet ﷺ, there were no chains of narration. It was the Prophet ﷺ speaking to the Sahaba. There's no chain, it's just me talking to you. And so clearly there was a difference between Quran and hadith Qudsi at that time. So to say, well, it has to do with the chain, that's irrelevant at that time. I hope everybody understands that point. Is that clear? I hope, I hope that makes sense to everybody. Okay, great. So that's some background. So the main points that I think are the most solid are Hadith Qudsi are different than Qur'an in, in three main regards. The Qur'an is a miracle. The Qur'an is a challenge to mankind till Judgment Day. And you pray with Qur'an. And Allah Ta'ala made that what it is, like the published book from that perspective. Whereas after that, there's commentary or there's statements or whatever the case is. And, and alhamdulillah, we take it, but it's not the Qur'an. The Qur'an is something unique in and of itself. Okay, it's a standalone. Now, that all being said, let's get into the hadith itself. The first statement is all we're going to be covering tonight, inshallah ta'ala, which is what? Ya ibadi inni haramtu zulma ala nafsi wa ja'altuhu baynakum muharraman fala tazalamu. Oh my servants, I have forbidden oppression, zulm. For myself, I have uh, forbidden it for myself, and have uh, and therefore, I, and I have also made it forbidden amongst you. So, do not oppress one another. Don't do any injustice towards one another. Now, the word zulm in and of itself needs to be explained. It means injustice, oppression. It also means tyranny, injury, acting wrongfully, misplacing a thing which causes some sort of suffering or loss. We all get the general idea. And we know that the Qur'an is very explicit that Allah does not do injustice to anybody. Allah says, وَلَا يَظْلِمُ رَبُّكَ أَحَدًا Allah does not do injustice to anybody. Allah says what? إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَظْلِمُ مِثْقَالَ ذَرَّةٍ Allah doesn't even do injustice the weight of an Adam's weight. Not even an Adam's weight. No, no amount. And Allah doesn't even want to. وَمَا اللَّهُ يُرِيدُ ظُلْمًا لِلْعَالَمِينَ That Allah Ta'ala says what? And Allah does not want injustice for the world. So Allah doesn't want to do injustice to anybody. Now, the statement, I have made it forbidden upon myself, gets us into a little bit of, you could say, philosophical territory. Um, and so bear with me, this might get a little bit abstract. Sometimes people are kind of like, they kind of space out and get lost a little bit when you, when you get into these sort of philosophical issues. But I think they're important to talk about and they're interesting. How can we understand the idea that Allah forbids injustice upon himself? That's the first statement, right? So, 
what we need to first analyze is that, well, what's interesting is that there's about three different ways that you can look at this. Number one is that injustice is theoretically possible for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. However, he has forbidden it for himself and removed that possibility. That's one way of looking at it. It seems to be the most straightforward. But the other way of looking at it, two other ways of looking at it, is by saying that Allah cannot do injustice. That he's really, what he's saying is, I cannot do injustice. And there's two reasons as to why that's poss possibly the case. Allah Allah, one idea is that Allah cannot do injustice. Why? Because evil is completely against Allah's nature, and therefore it is an impossibility on his part. And so the only reason he's saying, I forbid it upon myself, is for emphasis. And it would be kind of similar to the way Allah says that, Allah tells the messenger, Allah says to the messenger, if you were to do shirk, then you would destroy all of your good deeds. Now, it's an impossibility that the Prophet would ever do shirk, but it's still, like, it's just being said anyway. So even though it's an impossibility, it's being stated. So it's kind of like in that perspective, and Allah knows best. I personally find that to be probably the weakest opinion. Another opinion is what? That it's impossible for Allah to do injustice because the moment that he does something that is quote-unquote unjust, then clearly he hasn't given you a right to, for you to complain about. Like, for instance, let's say he creates a, a creature and he just tortures it. And then that creature saying, why did you create me to be tortured? Why not? Well, that goes against my rights. Who gives rights? So the very fact that I'm doing it means that I didn't give you a right. And the very fact that you don't have a right means that you didn't have it, so it's not wrong, because you don't have rights to begin with. I'm the author of rights, and if I didn't give you rights, then therefore you don't have them. So even logically, the moment I've done it means that you didn't have those rights if I didn't give them to you. So how could I be going against the rights that I didn't give you? You guys get it? It's kind of abstract. I know. I apologize. <laughs> Sorry if it's a little weird. This issue, by the way, this has been debated about for thousands of years. The, nothing new under the sun, as they say. Uh, this is, as goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks, they used to talk about what? Euthyphro's dilemma. Anybody who studies any philosophy, they'll be familiar with the question of Euthyphro's dilemma. So apparently there's a guy named Euthyphro, and he had this question, which basically can be summarized as follows. Is something good because God says so, or does God say so because it's good? Right? So this the atheist will try to use to try to put the believer in a trap, right? And basically, he tries to pin him between two awkward positions. One position is saying, if God only commands that which is good, that means there's a standard above God that he has to be in conformity with, right? God only commands that which is good. Well, that means that there is this concept of good that is above God, and God must conform to it. So there's something above God, that's a problem. So then the believer wants to switch and say, no, it's the other one. If you go to the other side, you have another problem. If God simply takes neutral acts and labels some good and others bad, then it seems as if God can arbitrarily choose whatever. So he could say that this is good, and then he could say, no, I switched my mind, and you know what, it's bad. And it's just arbitrary. So whatever I point to and say good, bad, everything else, you know, there's no... So the atheist tries to stick the believer in a bit of a corner by putting him in Euthyphro's dilemma and saying, see, so which is it? Is it that something is good because God says so, or does God say so because it's already good, Right? So anyway, what is the response to Euthyphro's dilemma? That there's a third possibility. And Allah, Allah, this seems to be a valid opinion, which is that goodness is God's nature. And therefore, evil is the absence of God. And this is, I would say, confirmed by the fact that Allah, one of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Barr. Al-Barr means the absolute source of all goodness. Allah says, إِنَّهُ هُوَ الْبَرُّ rahim He is indeed the source of all goodness and the merciful. And this is furthermore confirmed by the idea that when you are punished in hellfire, one of the punishments is distance from Allah. As Allah says, That no, indeed, from their Lord that day, they will be partitioned. You will be blocked and cut off from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that is your punishment. So he is the source of goodness, and being cut from him is wickedness or evil in and of itself, or the punishment, you could say, in and of itself.
Yeah, I should say the punishment. And furthermore, getting closer to Allah and even seeing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to be the greatest of, uh, of rewards on Yawm al-Qiyamah. As we know, uh, the Prophet mentions beautiful narration that talks about how the believers will be asked, what else do you want? And they will say, Allah will ask them on, uh, in paradise, what else do you want? What else do you want? They'll say, Ya Allah, what else could we possibly want? Haven't you saved us from the fire and haven't you given us this and that? You've given us everything, Ya Allah. So what can we possibly ask for? And then the, the Prophet says, what? This is in Sahih Muslim. فَيَكْشِفُ الْحِجَابِ Then Allah Ta'ala will remove the veil. And they will have never been given anything that was more beloved to them than looking at their Lord, the most mighty and the most glorious. So in other words, the closer you get to uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the more goodness you have and the further away, the more uh, you could say uh, bad or evil or um, absent, uh, you know, uh, lack you have. And so I think this is a, a fair sort of middle ground that you could say that. We believe that, uh, that goodness is Allah's nature. And this statement could be understood as what? That Allah is saying that I have forbidden myself to go against my nature, essentially. That it's not that goodness is above me, and it's not that goodness is arbitrary. That my nature is goodness, and I will not go against. I have the choice, I have the option, but I will never go against my nature. And this personally, I find, makes the most sense, because part of perfection is to want to remain perfect, Right? If you are, let's say theoretically, if, 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 if a being has a perfect, perfect logic, perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom, then would at any point they say to themselves, you know what, I feel like not being perfect. I feel like being deficient. I feel like dying. I feel like being weak. I feel like being ignorant. No. Part of perfection is to want to continue to be perfect. And so it makes sense to say that Allah Ta'ala in His perfection doesn't go against his nature of perfection. Part, part, uh, in his goodness, never wants to go against goodness. So this is that statement, that it is part of my nature to never want to go against it. And anyway, from an Islamic perspective, from an Islamic historical perspective, the uh, good and the bad being entirely decided by Allah, this seems to be the Ash'ari position. So historically, there was a group of people named the Ash'ari, uh, the Ash'ari, and they were a group who took the position that, look, goodness and bad, whatever Allah says, that's what it is. And uh, the um, Mu'tazila had the opposite opinion. The Mu'tazila had the idea that, look, logic is something that, is, that exists. You know, this is a very Greek philosophical idea that logic exists, goodness exists as independent entities, and Allah Ta'ala is in conformity with them. So anyway, I believe that the third position, which, which is what I mentioned, which is that goodness is Allah's nature and evil is the absence of God, and therefore good and evil are neither arbitrarily chosen by God, nor are they above and independent from Him, and Allah knows best. Anyway, sorry for that uh, uh, long philosophical tangent. I know some of you may be not interested in these type of topics, but one day you might try to get busted. Someone will try to be clever and be like, is it good because God says so, or does God say so because it's good? And you'll be like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so at least, inshallah, you know there's an answer to that. Whether you remember it or not, you know there's an answer, inshallah. Okay, great. So, now, what's beautiful is that the fact that Allah Ta'ala doesn't do any injustice implies what? That all of Allah's actions are either between justice or grace. Justice or mercy, right? And so no matter what Allah Ta'ala gives, it's never going to be injustice. It's either going to be what you deserve or it's going to be what you deserve, but then I'm going to give you extra, extra, extra. You know, I remember a long time ago, somebody gave an example and said, imagine a person says, you know, if you work for me for the day, you know, I'll pay you $100, right? And so, you know, let's say one person, Ziad, he starts at the beginning of the day and he works the whole day. But then let's say uh, 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 Shamil, he comes half during the day, right? And let's say Brother uh, Yusuf, he comes at, right at the end of the day. And they all finish their work, right? And then I say, okay, $100, $100, $100, right? And it's like, well, I worked the full day. I said, well, didn't I tell you I'd pay you 100 for the full day? You said, yeah. And, you know, you only play, uh, worked half the day, but I also gave you 100 That's okay. I, I didn't do injustice. I just gave you extra because you only did half the day. And you, you only worked a li little bit of the day, right? But I still gave you 100 So you can't say that I've done you injustice 
But you can say I've given them extra mercy, right? So anyway, uh, and Allah knows best. And Allah has the highest of examples. Yes. So there's many different types of injustice. Injustice against Allah is shirk, which is the worst. Injustice towards oneself, Allah Ta'ala says what? Whoever doesn't repent, then they are the wrongdoers. They are the ones who are doing injustice. The question is, they're doing injustice against who? One answer is what? Against themselves. They're oppressing their own soul. Your own guilt is building and building and building. And what is it doing? When you make tawbah, that's a release. That's a release. Admitting your sins, admitting your faults, that lets, lets go. Right? And if you refuse to make tawbah, you're doing zulm. One interpretation of this ayah, you're doing zulm against yourself. So subhanAllah, don't do injustice against yourself. Make tawbah to Allah. Also Allah says what? وَمَنْ يَتَعَدَّ حُدُودَ اللَّهِ فَقَدْ ظَلَمَ نَفْسَهِ And whoever transgresses the limits of Allah has certainly wronged himself. Every time you think, oh, you know, halal, haram, I'm just going to break the rules a little bit, you're only harming yourself. Whoever exceeds the limits of Allah, he's only harming himself. That's according to this ayah, the first ayah in surah, surah al-talaq. Then of course there's harming other people. Whoever does not judge by what Allah has revealed, then those indeed are the wrongdoers. And this includes humans, but it also includes even the animals, even the creation, other than human beings. For example, the Prophet says what? Uh, Allah's curse is on the one who mutilates animals. So subhanAllah, any sort of injustice... Uh, it has many different forms. In fact, there's one hadith that so beautifully summarizes different forms of, of injustice. The Prophet says, this is a hadith uh, that's a, uh, considered Hassan by Al-Albani, so it's an authentic hadith. And uh, it's reported by Abu Nu'aym and Al-Bazar. It's, it's, it's reported in different places. Al-Zulmu Thalathatun. That the, the Prophet says what? Uh, zulm or injustice comes in three types. فَظُلْمٌ لَا يَغْفِرُهُ اللَّهُ وَظُلْمٌ يَغْفِرُهُ وَظُلْمٌ لَا يَتْرُكُهُ One type of oppression is the one that Allah does not forgive. The other is the one that He forgives, and the other one is the one that He doesn't leave it alone. So what are these three different types? Not forgive, forgive, and then I won't leave it alone. So what are they? As for the first one, فَأَمَّا الظُّلْمَ الَّذِي لَا يَغْفِرُهُ اللَّهِ فَالشِّرْكُ قَالَ اللَّهِ إِنَّ الشِّرْكَ لَظُلْمٌ عَظِيمٌ As for the, the one that Allah does not forgive, then that is shirk, association, partners with Allah, because Allah says, indeed, shirk is a great injustice. وَأَمَّا الظُّلْمَ الَّذِي يَغْفِرُهُ اللَّهُ فَالظُّلْمُ الْعِبَادِ أَنفُسُهُمْ فِي مَا بَيْنَهُمْ وَبَيْنَ رَبِّهِمْ And as for the type of oppression that Allah forgives, it is the one that the slaves they do against themselves, against their own selves, that is between them and Allah. In other words, when you do something wrong in private, and you're not exposing yourself to the world, you're not bragging about it, you're not proud of it, but you've done something wrong against your own self, and it's between you and Allah, and you ask Allah to forgive you, Allah can forgive you. Right? So this is, this is beautiful. What is the third type? As for the, the oppression that Allah will not leave alone. It is the type of oppression that one does to the other, in other words, between each other, you human beings between each other, and it won't be left alone until there is retribution done between you two. SubhanAllah. That this, Allah will not let it go. In other words, when you do wrong against yourself, when you do evil things, and you've kept it private between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and then you feel remorse, and you genuinely turn to Allah and say, oh Allah, I'm going to try to be better, and I, and, I, and I ask you to forgive me. Allah's like, I'll forgive it, no problem. It's not a big deal. Why? Because Allah can forgive if you have as many sins, subhanAllah, that cover the whole earth, as long as you're sincere. And as long as you're turning to Him and you want to change. And even if you do it again, you still come back, and you still say, now, now I want to change. Now I try. You always try to renew yourself. But if you are doing it, an oppression to somebody else, that will not be left alone until you reconcile it. And subhanAllah, this is a very, very scary hadith. 
and I'll talk about this a little bit more right at the end, inshallah, but I just want to mention that subhanAllah, zulm is so ugly that if you do it, if you are a, 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 an oppressor, somebody who is doing injustice to others, you will not have success, you will lose out on Allah's love, you will have darkness on Judgment Day, and subhanAllah, that you will be subjected to retaliation. Let's go through the ayat just real quickly. إِنَّهُ لَا يُفْلِحُ الظَّالِمُونَ That the wrongdoer and the oppressor does not succeed. Allah says, وَاللَّهُ لَا يُحِبُّ الظَّالِمِينَ Yes, that Allah does not love, does not have love for those who are oppressors and do wrong. That the Prophet says what? Be on guard and protect yourself from committing oppression because oppression is a darkness that will cover you on judgment day. And the final one is what? Be wary and guard yourself against the prayer of the oppressed one. Why? Even if he's a disbeliever. Because there is no partition. As in there's no, there's no barrier between his dua and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In other words, it's direct. Mubasharatan, direct connection. When somebody is oppressed, they make dua. If it's against you because you, you, you stole their money, you did some sort of wrong to them, then subhanAllah, you have no idea how bad that can be. And so yes, I did want to mention, and the final point, that I, or the final hadith I want to mention is what? That the Prophet says something so powerful. This is in Sahih Bukhari. مَنْ كَانَتْ عِنْدَهُ مَظْلَمَةٌ لِأَخِيهِ فَلْيَتَحَلَّلْهُ مِنْهَا Whoever has wronged his brother should what? يَتَحَلَّلْهُ He should, he should, uh, this could mean um, seek to be released from him or seek to be absolved or seek to be discharged. And the word أَحَلَّ يُحِلُّ technically means to untie a knot, right? وَحْلُ الْعُقْتَةَ مِنْ لِسَانِ يَفْقَوْ قَوْلِ Famous dua in, in, in Surah Taha. I think it's ayah number 25 or 27, somewhere around there. Anyway, Allah Ta'ala says what? That Musa alayhi salam is saying, Oh Allah, untie the knot from my tongue. Let me speak more fluently, right? So, the idea is, it's as if this hadith is so powerful because it's saying what? If you've done some sort of oppression to your brother, then go seek that he unties you essentially. Like, think of it like if I spoke bad behind somebody's back, that guy has me in a chain. And I need to go up to that person and say, Hey, can I have the key? I'm, I'm kind of tied up here. There's like, my, my neck is tied up and my arms are tied up, I, I, can you please forgive me? I said something bad behind your back. I know I shouldn't have said that. I know I shouldn't have backbitten you. I know I shouldn't have you know, joked about you. I know I shouldn't have insulted you. I know I shouldn't have embarrassed you. I know I shouldn't have done that. I'm tied up right now. I'm chained up because of you. Go seek him to unchain you. SubhanAllah. This is the hadith. As uh, there will be neither in the, in the akhirah, in the, in the afterlife, there will be no, neither dirham nor dinar. There will, be, there will be no compensation. And so the Prophet continues to say, he should seek his pardon before some of his good deeds are taken and paid for by his brother. Or if, if he has done no good deeds, then some of the bad deeds of his brother are taken and loaded onto him in the hereafter. So in other words, you will be chained to this person. You'll be tied up by this person. The only way you're going to get out of it is on Yom Al-Qiyamah if he takes some of your good or if he gives you some of his bad. So this is so such a scary hadith. And the reason I find it so scary is because we do wrong to one another probably quite often. Unfortunately, when it comes to 